Hello, welcome back, and thank you for listening again to the History of the Congo. Season 2, Episode 7 The 1950s, Urbanisation and the Rise of Political Parties Last time we left the Congolese, they were victorious after their contributions to the Allied war effort in World War II. At home they had laboured to provide the raw materials and agricultural products needed to support the war effort. The force public had been mobilised to win victories in Abyssinia, North Africa and Burma, and Katangan mine workers had provided the uranium needed for the atomic bombs that were dropped on Japan to finally end the war. All of this was done against the backdrop of ambiguous, to say the least, support from the Belgian king and certain heads of industry. Many of these had actually sympathised with the Axis cause and thought that Germany would remain victorious after their blitzkrieg campaigns of 1940. Such dramatic events changed the dynamics of power in the Congo and its relationship with Belgium. Seeing their colonial rulers defeated and being exposed to a world outside of Belgium rule, a new awareness was galvanised in those Congolese exposed to these wartime struggles. Any narrative that the Belgians had an innate right and duty to govern the Congo was now opaque and easily questioned. Supporting this new confidence, the Congo and the Congolese were becoming wealthier. Some were finally reaping the rewards of their labour and the richness of their ancestral lands. Gross domestic product, that ubiquitous measure for the economic value of an economy, nearly doubled during the 1950s. The company shared in the post-war boom experienced by many countries. In only eight years from 1950, GDP rose from 0.6 billion US dollars to 1.1 billion in 1958. In that same period, total wages earned by Congolese workers rose almost threefold, from 0.1 billion to 0.3 billion. The economy was growing. But importantly, the share earned by the Congolese was also increasing, from 17% to 25% of national income. This was partially diluted by a growing population, but the number of inhabitants was not growing at anywhere near the rate the economy was. The Congolese were absolutely getting richer. There was a small number of Belgians who earned a massively disproportionate share of wages, yes, but the Congolese were, as a whole, more prosperous. Employment opportunities were on the rise. The country was moving comprehensively away from subsistence farming, and by 1956, nearly 40% of the adult male population earned a living through employment. But the story is in the detail, of course. The highest earning wage earners were those aligned to the three pillars of the colonial regime, i.e. civil servants working for the government, the lower rungs of company managerial positions, and employees of the religious missions. Such opportunities were mostly found in large towns and cities, and people were attracted to the larger conurbations, such as Kinshasa and Lubumbashi, for the greater opportunities that these presented. Van Raybuck met with Longin Nguadi in Kikwit after months of searching for him. Longin tells of his journey as over five days he travelled from his home in the central Congo to Kinshasa in search of opportunities. He found a job, initially as a salesman, then as a footballer, which admittedly was less typical, and finally as a servant. During this time he earned enough money to thoroughly enjoy himself in the city, a far cry from his rural upcoming. He was one of thousands of young men who moved to the cities in search of a better life at this time. Some Congolese became successful entrepreneurs. Joseph Kapenda Tshombe, 
became the first Congolese Congo Franks millionaire by distributing manioc and other goods from the southern Kasai province to the Kapanga province in northern Katanga. Outside of the colonial glass ceiling, there were now viable business opportunities presented within a stable society and a growing economy. Women too were migrating to the cities, and the cities became hubs of fashion and style. Victorine Unjoli, a fashion model, became the first Congolese lady to obtain a driving licence in 1949. By now, the Belgian Congo was more advanced socially than other African colonies in certain aspects. Paulioni Lasanga became the first African female broadcaster, with a role as an announcer on Radio Congo Belge. It is important to make distinctions between the Belgian Congo of 1910 and the Belgian Congo of the 1950s. Everywhere, things had changed. Those Congolese that became a success enjoyed perhaps the best urban amenities anywhere in sub-Saharan Africa. The medical system, a legacy of the colonie scientifique of the 1920s and 30s, was now the best south of the Sahara. Birth rates were at six, and mortality rates were dropping as healthcare improved. The colonial authorities had embarked on an ambitious programme of economic and social development. Largely run by the Catholic and minority Protestant missions, there were now 339 hospitals, over 1,600 rural health facilities, and an additional 192 specialist health facilities. By 1955, there were 65,000 beds available to those who needed medical attention. But it wasn't just money and infrastructure that attracted migration. The 1950s represented a dynamic cultural scene found throughout the clubs and bars. Kinshasa in the 1920s and the 1930s had always been a vibrant city, as we have seen from the Pan-African intellectuals' movements in earlier episodes. But music was equally, if not more important, to most people. In the 1930s, the Congolese took Afro-Cuban rumba, which was dominating West and Central Africa, and emphasised the guitar instead of the piano. With forefathers such as Ferruzzi, the DRC became the dominant presence in African music. When Radio Congo Belge started broadcasting in the 1940s, the sound was everywhere, mostly sung in the Central Congo language of Lingala. In the 1950s, this scene erupted with Le Grand Calais, El African Jazz, a full-time professional orchestra. This blended Cuban influences, Western instruments and Congolese rhythms to create the sound of Kinshasa in the 50s. Grand Calais is sometimes called the father of African music and today still evokes the sound of dancing and people lost in a good evening when a rival orchestra, OK Jazz, led by Franco Luambala Macchiardi, was set up a few years later, the scene became even more vibrant. These were confident times. The Congolese were ever more self-assured. Independence was more than a murmur now, and this was the soundtrack. You can hear embryonic sucus in these sounds. This is relatively recent history, and videos online show a pleasant setting in 1950s Kinshasa and metropolitan Congo. There are wide boulevards and clean streets with just a few cars and scooters, able to drive unencumbered by other traffic in the wide, glorious roads. With a population at just under 300,000 at this time, Kinshasa looks like a paradise of gardens. It represented modern pleasant living, at least from the view of the Belgians who are recording the film. These images are a long way from the scenes of the jungle and explorers all the way to the 1940s. They remind me more of affluent 1950s America films. The whole image was changing. But this wealth and vibrancy was largely limited to the cities. 
the majority of people who worked in agriculture did not reap the benefits of these changes. Agricultural prices were kept low by the colonial authorities, ostensibly as a means of controlling inflation. In reality, this meant a precarious existence for farmers who could not share the economic progress through rising prices. A high proportion of income was saved to protect against the hard times, and the meagre amount left allowed very little access to the new material prosperity enjoyed by some of those in urban areas. But the increasing mobility of the population meant that they were aware of the dissent discussed in the cities. The agricultural communities, perhaps the most adversely impacted of the people, were also aware of the growing voice for independence. In this new world, the Belgians in the Congo themselves had changed. We discussed in earlier episodes how the majority of the Belgians in Europe were confused at best by colonialism. There was little support for the initial setup of the Belgian Congo from the socialist and the liberal parties. It was only the more traditional Catholic and monarchist leading parties that supported the colonial project absolutely. But after the war, these traditionalist parties were tainted by their wartime positions and willingness to support Germany. They were not even loyal to Belgium in its darkest hours, and they needed to change. The Catholic Party was disbanded, but it re-emerged as the rebranded and more liberal-leaning Christian Social Party, winning the 1946 election with 43% of the vote. But after this, the Belgian Socialists and Communists were second and third, with a combined vote of 44%, a seismic shift to the previous status quo. The Belgians who were working and living in the Congo, called the Territorials, were not the colonials of the past. The colony had existed for over 45 years, and for them, the legacy of King Leopold II was long gone. Their experience was so far removed from the horror of the turn of the century that some of them did not believe the stories that were recounted to them. These colonial employees chose a career of service in the Congo and were required to successfully apply and graduate from the colonial university based in Antwerp. Alternatively, they required a humanities degree with a further six-month conversion course. Territorials arriving were educated and familiar with colonial life and the expectation on them. I dare say a few younger listeners of this podcast could have been attracted to this career judging by the comments in the emails I occasionally receive. These expat colonial graduates believed that they were making the world better for everyone. They described the Belgian Congo as a beautiful place and strongly rebutted the accusations of imperialism and brutality levied on them by the Belgian population after they returned in the 1960s. Maurice Lalaine, a former colonial, wrote an open letter to the Belgian publication Le Soir, which had criticised the colony long after independence. He asked whether any of the journalists criticising the colony had helped the Congolese as administrators, health workers, doctors and engineers. The answer, of course, was no. None of the journalists had done any of the above. But by then, the anti-colonial zeitgeist of the 1960s mania was thoroughly embedded. Many of these territorials were fascinated by the Congo and had a manifold interest in Africa. The academic Marie-Benedict Dembour collected stories of the territorials in the 1990s. This was part of a project where she started with the view that their actions were aligned with brutal oppression and avarice. She recounts how these impressions, founded on little but the general consensus, disappeared during the interviews. One territorial remained an avid socialist and had set up and was running a foundation for disabled people in Rwanda. Some took pains to learn the languages of the peoples in the Congo and became familiar with the tribal customs, which was a necessary skill in negotiating the application of justice. 
The first point of legal authority was always the local chief, who had a significant sway in any decision, prior to the more formal colonial judiciary becoming involved. But it wasn't, of course, a bed of roses. The whip, the dreaded chicot, was still applied. The Congo, as with all history, devised generalisations as soon as you look at the detail. There were some who justified it as an application of the law, which was drummed into them during their studies. One African chief, whose power was supported by the colonial system, told of his disappointment at the increased reluctance of the Belgians to apply the whip which supported his authority. The chief recounts, when the whip was applied to whole villages, when a branch hit the eye of a colonial officer travelling in a sedan chair. He then follows this with a complaint that this would never happen in the 1950s, as the whip was used far too sparingly. There were supporters of the regime in many surprising places. Perhaps these chiefs knew what would emerge if Belgian power waned too quickly. Despite the increasing reluctance of the new territorials to use the whip, the legacy of the them and us mentality continued in many areas. As late as 1958, in a throwback to a 19th century exhibition, the Brussels Expo contained an example of what was called a typical Congolese village. Included in this display were Congolese, actually of the middle class termed emolues, who had been asked to pretend that they were living a rural life for the visitors. But times had changed, and after a short time these Congolese refused to participate in the charade, and the exhibition was ended. There was not as great a shame as by the organisers as you would imagine, and the people had to endure mindless abuse by a minority before they took matters into their own hands and put a stop to it. Thank goodness for them. They refused to be part of this. But this is just an example to show that some people in authority had not moved with the times. Humiliating and disgraceful as this exhibition was, the lack of cultural development in some Belgium circles was mirrored in the employment opportunities afforded to the Congolese. Although Belgium had relied on Congo for the wealth and some international importance after the war, there was still a glass ceiling in place for the most senior positions for Congolese. Unlike most British and French colonies, who were opening up opportunities for Africans, the Belgians put their heads in the sand and tried not to change anything. Open protest against the colonial regime was still difficult, and the gunfire used to suppress the Katanga strikes in 1944 was still remembered. With open protest too prone to violent put-down, one route of protest became bodies of professional affiliations. As early as 1952, the medical assistants formed an association to defend their interests. These were the highest paid of all Congolese employees, but the path to becoming a qualified doctor was still closed to them, despite their academic achievements and their experience. At an average wage of 140 US dollars, they were still paid less than the lowest paid colonial administrator from Belgium, which started at 240 dollars. Other Congolese who had reached the highest employment positions available to them the Evolues, whom we have met before, protested along similar lines. In the 1950s they campaigned for better opportunities and a much fairer system. Social mobility was openly discussed, but any discourse of independence with the authorities was as yet quite far away. In the 1950s Congolese children were included in one of the most comprehensive primary education systems in sub-Saharan Africa. Over 36% of all children between the ages of 6 and 14 attended school regularly. But after this, the state educational opportunities abruptly stopped, no matter the potential of the child. There were now two universities in the Congo, one in the Katangan capital, Lubumbashi, then called Elizabethville, 
and one in Kinshasa, then Leopoldville. But these were not for the Congolese students. The latter university even included a nuclear reactor in its basement, but the technological ambition exceeded the social ambition. Despite these facilities, in 1960, fewer than 20 Congolese had graduated. Of the top 1,400 jobs in the civil service, only three were held by Congolese. There was lip service to progression, but underlyingly the regime did not view the Congolese as equals. This lip service manifested itself in the carte de marite civique, supposedly a badge of honour for Congolese who had been patronisingly viewed as civilised, which attracted certain benefits. It was a badge of prestige, but there were still hurdles to overcome. One man who received such a card was Patrice Lumumba from the Northern Kasai, who eventually achieved this accolade. Despite his pride in achieving this badge of progress, however, the stark reality of his position was thrust upon him when he caught the eye of a young Belgian woman. Reportedly, she said the fatal words, Sally Makaki, which translates as dirty monkey, the anger that this fueled would justifiably not subside and would have hugely significant consequences later. If you don't recognise this name now, remember it, Patrice Lumumba. Despite incidents like this, there was some glimmer of an official narrative of Baljo-Congolese convergence, but any progress was lost to inertia. Despite the thrust from the Congolese and a more liberal new set of Belgian territorials living in the colony, things were changing very slowly. The Congolese soon realised nothing concrete was actually happening. An optimism gave way to cynicism and disillusion as new opportunities and no true steps to equality became manifested in reality. The resentment against the colonial regime continued to simmer and simmer and simmer. But still protest avenues were hard to find. Political parties were banned and organisations were not able to openly aspire to independence. But what remained was the people. The deep cultural richness of the Congo peoples and their differing histories were in people's very identities, as it is for all of us. The Belgian-Congo borders, negotiated and grabbed with little African input, held a huge diversity of peoples, with their own languages and their own traditions. These could never have been swept away during the colonial period. We have seen many missionaries and territorials actively embedding themselves within these. The peoples of the Congo, the Luba, the Lunda, and the other estimated nearly 250 peoples knew their history, and they were proud of it. Of these peoples, the people of the Kingdom of the Congo, or the Bakongo, were one of the first to organise themselves by their history in an organisation embedded in the colonial hierarchy. In 1950, the Alliance de Bakongo, or Abako, was formed. In some Congolese languages, the prefix Ba, before a tribe or kingdom name, indicates people of. Bakongo means people of the Congo Kingdom, and Baluba means people of the Luba Kingdom. The Alliance de Bakongo was literally the alliance of the Congo peoples. Geographically, Abaco was centred, as you would imagine, in the heartland of the Congo Kingdom. In the 1950s Belgian Congo, this meant the capital, Kinshasa. Mbanza Congo, or San Salvador as it was latterly called, was now a provincial capital in northern Angola. But with five centuries of unique history, and the shared Kikongo language, the Bakongo were an obvious collective power base. We have already seen how, centuries later, the kingdom itself was an independent state with diplomats and alliances on the international stage. Although clumsy colonial boundaries had been drawn over these lands, the people still longed for authority and prestige for this ancient and once powerful kingdom. Initially, Abaco was a cultural organisation, 
defending the Kokongo language in the face of the growing dominance of Lingala. But gradually the aims became more ambitious. In 1951, Simon Kimbangu, himself of the Bakongo, passed away in prison after nearly 30 years in captivity. At the time of his passing, he was the world's longest serving political prisoner ever. We can speculate the passing of this revered figure crystallised a sense of anger in the Bakongo and the wider Kimbanguist followers. In 1954, Mbako held presidential elections and Joseph Kasavubu became the new head of this organisation. He had much greater ambitions than language, and using his experience as a mid-level civil servant, he campaigned on social and political emancipation. Whilst the Bakongo were finding a unified voice again, Patrice Lumumba, the disillusioned Evolue whom we met earlier, was also finding his. In 1955, he became regional president of a Congolese-only trade union. As he matured, he became more focused on this ambition, to give the Congolese greater opportunities and voice. In 1955, however, he thought this best achieved within the colonial paradigm, and his ambitions envisaged a joint Belgian-Congolese community governing the country equally. Modern African scholars would term this the illusion of the epoch. He moved to Kinshasa to work as a PR representative for a Kinshasa brewery. Whilst working here, his impressive speeches and rousing rhetoric earned him an invitation on a study tour to Belgium by the Liberal Party. Here he met Belgians who would openly challenge Belgians' ruling role in the Congo. There will be no turning back from these ideas for Patrice Lumumba. He returned to the Congo buoyed with these thoughts, but almost immediately he was arrested. Not for political reasons, but for theft. When he landed he was put on trial and sent to prison for two years for embezzlement from the post office. This was actually the third time he had been caught, and this, and this time the judicial system served a custodial sentence. But while Namumba was serving his sentence, a ticking time bomb was set in motion far away. 9,000 kilometres away, a Flemish academic wrote an article musing the future. It was to have enormous consequences, affecting millions of people to this day. The academic was called Professor Van Bilsen, and the article was called A 30-Year Plan for the Political Emancipation of Belgian Africa. The Belgian response was ambivalent. Firstly, it was written in Flemish, which was not as prevalent as French, and secondly, it was seen as idle speculation and left as an academic curiosity. Its Belgian freight was to gather dust in university libraries. But in the Congo, it was different. This was dynamite. Independence, as written by a Belgian... There was a sudden and huge shift in political discourse. On the 23rd of August 1956, Kasavubu, the president of the Abako Party, responded to Van Vilsen's plan. We must remember that the Abako Party considered itself to be the representative of over one million people at this time. His response on behalf of the party was his own manifesto on the same subject, causing for an orderly and much more timely transition to self-rule. Modern scholars identify this as the first real moment of the political campaign for independence by the Congolese. Kasavubu used these exact words, independence immediate. They were to become a rallying cry. A Belgian academic had whispered the unspeakable, and the conversation could now not be closed. By an astonishingly powerful coincidence, at the same time, for the first time, a 1957 decree asked the Governor-General to establish local community councils. Rural chiefs had always been part of the Belgian Congo judicial system, but now municipal elections were to be held in the towns and cities 
to represent a community voice in these burgeoning population hubs. Despite the 30 years book title, embryonic democracy was coming now. Ambitious and powerful Congolese seized this opportunity. Ostensibly parties were vying for positions in municipal councils, but the rhetoric that attracted votes was much more extreme. In 1958 other political parties, in addition to Abako, were rising. And the ambition of these peoples, like the people of the Congo, was not limited to municipal powers. The Luba peoples in Katanga were represented by Balubakat, headed by Jason Sendwe. A second party in Katanga, Konakat, was formed by Moise Shombe, identifying with the Lunda tribe. He was the son of the Maniok millionaire that we saw earlier, a charismatic leader who had inherited his father's ambition, if not his business acumen. You should note these two parties with the attention required. Immediately, as soon as elections were in place, two parties in the same province competed for power along tribal lines. In the east, in the Kuvu provinces, the Centre de Regroupement Africon, or Sarea, was formed by Anisette Kashamuro, and in the centre, Patrice Lumumba, emerged from prison in Kisangani with more radical ideas. He set up the Mouvement National Congolaise, or the MNC. Of the parties mentioned above, the MNC was unique. It was not centred on ethnicity or regions. The party was to represent all of the Congolese in the Belgian Congo. In Lumumba's mind, if they combined, they would be far stronger. Maybe this was because he was from a smaller tribe, with his family from the Batatella, or maybe he was heavily influenced by socialism, which viewed people in terms of their control over resources rather than ethnicity. But either way, Lumumba and the MNC were alone in their unified Congolese ambition. Finally, to complete the picture, the MNC party split soon after inauguration, as Lumumba's previous friend in the Kasai, Albert Kalonji, split. They disagreed on a pan-Congolese approach, if we can call Lumumba's position that. Kalonji could not reconcile his views in the way forward with Lumumba, whom he viewed as too radical and too socialist. His party and followers severed their links with Lumumba in a new party called the MNCK, K being for Kalonji of course. It became a federalist party, based on the Baluba peoples of the southern Kasai. Lumumba was undeterred and continued heading up the MNC's original plans now called the MNCL. Like the great tributary rivers flowing into the mighty Congo, these two streams, municipal representation and political independence, became inextricably linked in the minds of the Congolese. Together, they combined and rushed towards the rapids. The municipal elections were the only way for the population to voice their frustrations at the colonial regime, and increasingly, independence was the rhetoric used in the campaigns. But before we progress too far down this road, but before we progress too far down this road, we must remind ourselves that the Congo and Belgium had always been swimming in the river with bigger fish. The United States, now cohabiting the global superpower stage with the Soviet Union, still kept a watchful eye. They expressed their view, and I quote, as follows. The United States is vitally interested in the continual flow of mineral products from the Congo. Any interruption of this flow, whether in the consequence of an economic crisis or political factors, was of paramount importance. The United States wasn't interested in the power struggles of the DRC. They wanted to maintain control of strategic resources, building from the importance of this in World War II. The rest of Africa was also changing. The Congolese could see former superpowers relinquish their colonies. 
Sudan and Ghana achieved independence from Britain in 1956 and 1957 respectively. Morocco and Tunisia also achieved independence in 1956 from France, with Guinea following in 1958. The Belgian government knew this was happening and looked on in alarm at the war France was tied down in, losing men and goodwill at home in the war with the Algerian independence movement. And at this precipice, surrounded by change, we must leave the Congo this time. After decades of silence, the Congolese have seized the opportunity provided to them by municipal elections to state their own visions for the future in a democratic environment. Regional and ethnic parties were drawn up in competition with the one national Congolese party, the MNCL, once again headed up by Patrice Lumumba. The winds of change were sweeping through Africa and for the first time, independence was truly on the table. So what would happen at the elections? I can tell you already that the ballot box was ominously not the only factor in the future of the Congo. And there we must leave the people of the 1950s, ready to enter these elections, which had come to mean so much more. In the minds of the voters and the parties, this was an election which decided who controls the future. It will be a paradigm shift in the next podcast, as we will see both the results and the repercussions. Hold on to your hats. And until then, safe travels. (laughs) 